Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay and Sam Clay. What's going on? Sam. Yes. Did you realize that you were late? No, I did not. I'm sorry, I apologize. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> For all of our podcast listeners, I did give you a bit of a heads up, but I didn't script it, right? I didn't tell you what I was going to do, but right. I didn't want you to feel too vulnerable. But yeah, you did perfect. Oh, Guess what you. our article's about? What's our article about? <laughs> Anatomy of an over-apology. Oh, okay. Interesting. Stop it! It's not your fault or your problem. Written by Susan Krauss Whitbourne, PhD, out of the Psychology Today, February 2022 edition. Isn't that... You did a great job, Sam. <laughs> Thank you. I try my best. Sure. How many times do you find yourself saying I'm sorry for something that is not at all your fault? Perhaps you saw your partner leaving the house wearing shoes intended for indoor wear. An hour later, you received a distressed call from him. He's fallen on the icy sidewalk, resulting in a twisted ankle. You blame yourself for not having prevented him from changing shoes and apologize profusely. Perhaps a friend complains about a hassle she's experiencing, and I'm sorry is your first response. It's a natural enough expression, but what should you be sorry for? When you stop and think about it, you tend to say you're sorry frequently, including for matters that have nothing to do with you. Similarly, how much personal responsibility do you take when someone else makes a mistake that theoretically you could have prevented? Is your immediate expression of sorrow rational? You are in no way to blame for that outcome. On the other hand, you may honestly feel great empathy and can put yourself in the other person's position, vividly imagining the situation. There's little research into this kind of apology. The literature instead focuses on self-criticism as a component of depression. The tendency to regard yourself as the cause of other people's woes can place you at risk for chronic sadness. Similarly, Researchers approach self-blame as a feature of the depressed person's tendency to focus criticism inward. Studies about regret after bad behavior don't apply to the over-apologizer. Such research involves situations in which one person did harm to another. To understand the mindset of the chronic apologizer, it can be helpful to turn to the topic of empathy, in which you have a tendency to feel bad when others do. Tara Reich of the London School of Economics and colleagues investigated what happens to observers when they are the unintended witness to a supervisor harshly treating an employee. The research can help explain why some people's tendency to see the world from other people's eyes can trigger an empathy-motivated apology. If you can feel empathy toward a person who isn't necessarily a victim, this suggests that you could express just as much sorrow for the yelling supervisor as for the employee. You can probably relate to this scenario if you've ever felt that the person doing, or excuse me, doling out the criticism was entitled and right to do so. The tendency to feel empathy can be strongly influenced by how well you get inside the person's mental state. In many ways, the disability is a strength and can make you a valued friend, romantic partner, employee, or family member. You will go out of your way not to hurt others because you can imagine exactly what they're thinking and how they're feeling. As their state of mind becomes yours, it's possible for your own levels of distress to escalate accordingly.
When you find yourself ready to apologize, no matter what the situation, it seems worthwhile to consider ways you can scale back some of this perspective taking. Take a hard look at what you, not they, are feeling and then decide whether you've gone too far down this path. Apologizing is certainly a way to relate to others that can lead to greater harmony. Being able to pull back before you automatically engage your empathetic concerns can help you maintain the kind of perspective needed for your own emotional fulfillment. And again, that was written by Susan Krauss or Cross Whitbourne, PhD, in the um, Psychology Today, February 2022 edition. Anatomy of an Over Apology. Sam. Yes. What say you? <laughs> about that article um i think it's interesting i think uh what i take from it or especially just from personal experience if i uh aim to apologize to someone if i feel like i've done something wrong or i've called someone out for something that was i was over harsh or something i feel like i genuinely mean it i try my best to apologize and i feel like i over apologize sometimes i almost do too much and they almost just get tired of hearing me they're like all right it's fine it's fine I feel like because I just feel bad and I don't like being that way, so I feel like I do over apologize. I don't. If I issue like a fake apology, or I guess you could say under apologize, then I guess I really didn't mean my apology, which I try to always. I apologize pretty genuinely. I think you're exampling exactly what happens when you get those boundaries get crossed, when you get somewhat confused. And where does the confusion lie? Uh, It's not just sentiment. But sentiment follows thinking, thought. Uh, Though the author did not spend or expend a lot of energy, spend a lot of uh, effort, uh, energy, in trying to define the difference between empathy and perspective taking, there is a difference. Empathy usually has to do with your feelings, and she references that in the article. But she also talks about perspective taking. But perspectives are really, really important lest we all get confused by a lot of feelings and as much as you might have empathy, somebody's hurting, you start to put yourself in their shoes, you start to kind of relate to them in some way of comfort, of consolation when they're feeling so badly uh, and you want to comfort them in some ways. The risk is though that once you make that connection on a feelings level, your thoughts are going to go that direction as well. Generally speaking, they're going to be recounting whatever it is or sharing with you whatever it is that's created this awful sort of feeling. And as they do that, they begin to then frame the story. It's a subjective response. Now, when I say subjective response, what if you could translate that, what does that mean when you hear that? I feel like subjective response is almost like it's kind of like your personal feelings. It's just like if you think it's true, it just like depends on the person and how you would respond. Like it's subjective. Like it just kind of depends on the person. So something like that maybe. I don't really know if that's correct, but you could tell me if I'm wrong. Well, no, subjective is exactly uh, that. It's personal. Now, there's no curse in being subjective. We all are. The curse is, though, when we get so caught up in our subjective or our personal or uh, our feelings from our, uh, phenomenological, our feelings from our unique perspective that we don't take into account other people's feelings in a way that allows us then to find what is kind of not necessarily the opposite of subjectivity, but it is that thing that clears up all the confusion of not only emotions, But even as your point is, 
We can become so tied up in a perspective that's either uniquely our own or even as we share that or are sharing that with others, it can become something that they contribute or their perspective can contaminate ours so much so that neither of us could see what really is objectively reality. I feel like you can kind of cancel out the other person's perspective by like kind of influencing their decision. They they can question themselves, and then you say something back to them that can make them question it, which can kind of cancel it out. Well, I don't. Yes, when I need comfort, you can console me by saying, "Oh, that's so terrible that they did that." They she gave an example of the supervisor in the study uh, yeah. economics. Uh, who was the lady? It was Tara Reich of the London School of Economics and the supervisor. Well, I can certainly empathize with somebody being reprimanded. I mean, I've been reprimanded, uh, whether it's my starts with somebody in my family, like my mom, my dad, whether it extends itself to a coach, uh, maybe somebody, my dad, I get lectured by a lot of people anywhere these days, could be the next door neighbor, it could be the police officer. I, I can certainly appreciate those bad feelings, especially if I have feelings. You know, I have some sort of sense of, I didn't want to disappoint, I didn't want to let down. And I think that's important because a lot of that stuff does start with your worldview as a child is a really reality. <laughs> is that redundant to say, I've said it twice now, no, really reality. I it is a truly, yeah. let, me, let me say truly, truly reality. Yeah. Because you're a child. We all know that children, our, our first conscious awareness of our world is quite subjective. It's that way for a lot of reasons, but the two primary reasons, one is we don't have a lot of experiences, so it's very limited because you only know what you know in the world that you live in, and then there's a big world outside of the world that you live in. And then with that, our ability even to conceive of things outside of the more immediate, those things that are approximately in proximity, immediate to us, we don't have the mental capabilities. Is just not there. So kids are going to pretty much then leave childhood with distorted views of the world naturally. And then that's part of going out into the world, taking your paradigm, whatever it was, the subjective dimensions of your family, your home, and applying it in some way to new data, new facts, new situations, broaden your experience. Uh, now with a fully developed brain, hopefully as an adult, you can begin to conceptualize the world in different ways than you could when you were five and now you're 25. And hopefully you'll understand reality a bit better by all this additional input. But that usually isn't, typically isn't the way it works. I think especially when you're younger, I feel like your brain develops and you see different things and like you enter into the world, you say with like a distorted view of things. I think that's just kind of based off of like what you experience as a child. I think what you're like your parents do or what factors influence you when you're a child, that can help or kind of work to shape your like distortion, I guess you said, which is a good word for it. Your kind of distortion of reality whenever you enter into the real world, as you said. Well, yes, I'm going to go back to typically. It, it Typically, it is the way it works, but it doesn't work when you become an adult because that phenomenological, that idiosyncratic, egocentric, sort of way of looking at the world, everything revolves around you. It's a bit narcissism, narcissistic, because that's what kids are. I mean, they're the, hopefully, if they have any sort of good family environment supports, they're the center of everybody's attention. 
Birth order has a lot to do with that as well. The firstborn seems to get a lot of attention because look what I found. You know, their parents are so yeah. Well, isn't this amazing? You know, but by the time the second one comes around, the amazement's sort of worn off a bit. They've got some experiences as parents that kind of neutralizes or lessens that sort of, oh, this is fantastic, awesome sort of reaction. And thirdborn and then subsequent in the birth order, you might imagine, is probably going to be left with just the leftovers until maybe there is that phenomenon where they realize the parents, this is going to be our last one, and then they kind of get nostalgic and they want to go back and everything is sort of like, oh, isn't this the greatest thing in the world? But my my, uh, messaging here is, is that childhood is subjective. Child is phenomenological. Childhood is idiosyncratic. But to be a functional adult, everybody can't have the world the way that they want it to be or that the way that their world grew up, that they grew up in, was for them. And maybe there's some archetypes even in that, some universal patterns. But usually, when you get out into the real world, you have to begin to look at things much more objectively. Your perspective that you approach situations with has to include the ability to filter out the subjective at least sufficient to be able to see it for what it is. It doesn't necessarily, as you pointed out earlier in our conversation, neutralize it. It just basically says, I need to hold on to a standard of objectivity and then everything else including my subjective, my personality, which is, again, predicate upon subjective experiences of reality, of life, that needs to be brought into some alignment with it. But a lot of people, when they're feeling hurt, when they're uh, needing that empathy, they kind of revert back to or resort back to really childlike sort of paradigms and models. I think it could be kind of like you resort back to that because if you're feeling like concerned or worried, it's almost like a safe space or you go back to like if your childhood was good, like, oh, wait, this is a good time. You resort back to this because I feel safe and I felt good back then. And now you're kind of resorting back to that because you feel worried now. I think yes, I think you're like, absolutely right. Something in a, like that. In a, you're absolutely right in an ideal way. Of course, I only say ideal because we know that that's not always true. Some people grew up in horrible families. Uh, Getting back to the yelling supervisor, some people's parents, one or the other, are yellers. You know, folks who yell. Maybe they're worse. Maybe they're not only verbally marginal on that line of abuse. Maybe they're physically abusive. But that is a childhood memory that most of us in childhood or with what our brains are capable of doing in childhood, as much that might represent some sort of emotional trauma, you don't know if this is going to really harm you or how badly it's going to harm you when people go crazy around you by yelling or becoming physically abusive, what you end up doing is you end up sort of burying that, blocking that off so that you don't have to face it all or deal with it all. And even should you survive... It doesn't mean you've really sorted it out or figured it out. You've just hit it somewhere inside yourself, waiting for a moment or a day, such as when a supervisor is yelling at you, to somehow trigger a childhood memory that has all these really bad feelings attached to it. And in the moment, you're no longer an adult being sort of reprimanded by a supervisor. You're now a four-year-old child whose father or mother or parent 
however you want to describe that, since there's many options now in the parental role, it doesn't have to be sex, gender, identity, uh, identified. It could be the mom, the other mom, whichever, is yelling though. And when you're doing that, if you come along and you want to help, and you're saying, I'm really sorry you're feeling so bad. Well, yes, that's empathy. Yeah. But you've got to at least be careful that that person doesn't begin to corrupt your objectivity or your reality with their subjective sort of bias or prejudice, particularly if it's in all entrapped in all of this really dysfunction. And you become, unfortunately, aligned with them to the point of losing true objectivity, losing a true sense of reality. Yeah, because just like what you're saying, if you go up to someone and you're trying to help and then they end up corrupting you or just kind of influencing you to the point that you don't really have your sense of what you were talking about earlier, it doesn't really, it just makes it hard for someone to kind of be apologetic now if they get like, if you go and say, oh, I'm so sorry you feel bad, and they kind of lash out on you because they're, that childhood tri- that childhood memory was triggered, it makes you not really want to help anymore. It makes you kind of just like, oh, well, why am I helping? It kind of changes how you feel about things. Well, and it doesn't have to even be something as dramatic as that, although I think that, that probably is the first thought that comes to my mind. But it could be just that you've had a bad day. You've had bad encounters. Everybody you've run into, literally and maybe not so literally, encountered throughout the course of that day was just mean. You know, they were angry, they were upset, they were frustrated, they didn't maybe show you any kindness, they weren't very respectful. And then you capture this last sort of experience, moment in your day where somebody else is getting that and you're saying to yourself, I know exactly how you feel. Everything in life is just so messed up. People are just so mean. And here is this supervisor who is coming along and doing just the very same thing. Disrespect, inconsideration, disregard. Maybe they're just being mean. They're jumping in front of you at the checkout line. They're cutting you off in traffic. They stole your parking space. They run you over when you're doing when they're doing this quick list, this quick list things at the grocery store because they don't care. <laughs> they don't care. But the idea though is this: that's distorted too. But you may have all kinds of empathy for the person, and maybe legitimately that's something you need to process. But the so-called victim that's coming to you and sharing all of this, you're thinking to yourself, "Well, you know, they're right." Or, you know, I'm like them, and I feel the same way, so they must be right. But perspective-taking, I think, begins with a strong sense of not only objectivity, but always includes you having to know who you are so that when you brush up against all of these possible scenarios, and we've just kind of touched on the, well, possibly, potentially one of the most extremes with PTSD, post-traumatic stress, or one of the lesser extremes, which is just the day-to-day hassles of dealing with a lot of people in life who've got a lot of things they have to do and are somewhat narcissistic, just trying to get their stuff done. But there's countless scenarios that you're going to encounter. But to do it rightly, you have to know who you are. You have to realize your own subjective bias, either with empathy or that bias may include some paradigms, some ways of looking at life, so that you don't get caught up in stuff you don't want to get caught up in. 
feeling sorry for people that really you shouldn't have to apologize for. You can still help them, but aren't you going to be able to help them better if you're objective? You know, I think what you should do, the supervisor as an example, yeah. I think what you should do is you should go in there and punch him in the nose or her in the nose. Or you should go in and take a baseball bat to their office. Now, that's not very helpful if you're talking to a victim. It might encourage them and may make them feel more empowered, which is a word we love to use psychologically or in psychological sort of context. I like it too. I like the word empowered. Empowered. But that's not what really should happen. What should happen is... I understand how you're feeling, even to reflect on it, to say, yes, I know, I can identify that feeling, and then to comfort the person, but not necessarily to lose perspective or lose track of what is truly real. I think you're right. I think if you can draw that line between just like objective and subjective and you can draw the line and kind of use logic and not just use feelings or not be influenced by someone else or something, I think it'll be it's better and you can come up with more logical responses than you otherwise would if you're feeling like subjective or just like in your feelings and feeling like that. I think another dimension of this too is when people themselves have indeed been brought up either in less than adequate or optimal or idyllic sort of homes or childhoods, they have this sort of paradigm about not only the world, but as a result of what the world has done to them in those kind of abusive sort of dimensions, they go around in life feeling inferior. Now again, the author does note that, most of the research has to do with self-esteem and depression, but I think there's some truth to that. And we all know, too, that people who are depressed, whether it's situational, circumstantial, or just physiological, they tend to see the world in pessimistic terms, which is going to influence those feelings. If you've lost your ability to remain objective, if you're not really certain by the time you get to adulthood, you've not established your identity well enough to know what's right or what's wrong or to make some sort of, have some method, means of correcting when you recognize the distortions. What's going to happen is you're going to get depressed and all of a sudden you're going to begin to look at your feelings. They're going to be awful and then you're going to be thinking, why am I feeling so bad? Well, the world must be terrible. And you'll start to see things in that sort of lens of distortion. You, you said you liked that word earlier. You start to see it in a distorted way. It's still a lens so you can kind of see through it. It's not complete where you can't see anything. But everything is then sort of flavored by, or everything is sort of influenced, shaded, so to speak, by that distortion. And it changes how you think about yourself and your empowerment, your autonomy, your independence. Which, by the way, is something that we want people to have when they become adults. They, we want them to have good self-esteem. We want them to feel autonomous enough, independent enough, powerful enough to be able to no negotiate reality. And find success in it. But if you've got a personality that's predicated upon failure because of abuse or some inadequacy, maybe neglect, you're probably already vulnerable or prone. And then something like this is not going to do anything but reinforce what you already believe to be true, which is really very subjective and maybe not at all true. I think you're right. And I also think that if you start hanging out with kind of pessimistic people and people that kind of have those, like, ideas or just can't, like, use the objective and can't think logically through stuff, it'll start to influence you and how you think and how you react to things, too. If you 
put yourself in the place of just like if you start surrounding yourself with like these type of things it'll start to influence you and kind of change your outlook on things and it's hard to get back there uh it's hard to kind of regain that presuming that you had that and and i get it i mean i will accept it some people have just bad experiences, bad luck, maybe, but they're just a sequence of really bad experiences. And they come by that somewhat honestly then. But at the same time, I'm not entirely sure, however, that even if they get caught up in that trap, that there's enough people out there who would look at them and say, well, I thank you, I, I love you, I support you, if it's family member, if it's coworker, something equivalent, uh, I'm there with you, I understand. But let's stop and think about this objectively. You know, maybe the supervisor isn't a mean person. Yeah, you just kind of try to look at the positives and don't directly go to the negatives. Just kind of think through it logically. Maybe they've had a bad day. Maybe they've been chewed out by their Yeah, maybe they're being forced maybe they're being forced to do this. Which maybe doesn't justify anything that they're doing is just saying somewhere in it. It's not all of us are responsible to try to hold on to some degree of reality and be objective, lest we all fall into the ditch. Because truthfully, life is tough. Whether it's a minimal tough or a major tough as we've talked about in the podcast today, it is very difficult to get through it, and you have to maintain objectivity, lest you fall into all the negativity. And I would think that probably, depending on where you are and the culture you live in, you could probably be pushing a rock up a hill. There can be a lot of negative people who've shared culturally in a lot of bad things that have happened to them and then their neighbors in that culture. And they're not going to be able to step back and say, wait a minute. But somebody should step back and say, wait a minute. Because if you don't and you don't reset that, you are going to likely then continue to sort of reinforce at least have a greater opportunity, if that's probably not a good word, because opportunity seems to suggest something positive, a, a greater risk of repeating some of the same negative stuff and tearing yourself down even more self-esteem-wise. You kind of start getting that pattern. If you start tearing yourself down and you like do it once and then you, like I don't know, I don't know if it feels better or you just feel like more satisfied or something, if you get in that pattern or just stay in a pattern of doing something, it's going to become easier and easier to do as time goes on. And especially, it's a good way of thinking about like negative thoughts and just stuff like that. If you start tearing yourself down or tearing yourself apart, it's going to be easier and easier to do it. You're not going to be able to dig yourself out of that hole once you get there. So anatomy of an over-apology. Stop it. It's not your fault. It's not your fault or your problem. I do agree with the article. But I also would kind of say it, it, it this way, though. That as much as we can't fix everything for everyone, all of us though have some degree of responsibility to do the best we can so that we are as healthy as possible. And in that then, if somebody needs a little bit of recalibration or they just need something to sort of reconcile themselves to, which is really the best support because what that really means is, is that in the end, we're not selling them or encouraging more of the negativity or the distortion. We're trying to bring them to a better place of understanding reality or what reality is and dealing with it then. You know, in, in, in many ways, that's the essence of good psychotherapy, psychological counseling. 
You come in with the hope that the person that you're going to speak to is going to be empathetic. They're going to understand your perspective, but they're also going to represent reality. And always, I want to kind of bring it back to this uh, with the podcast. That's why we do these podcasts. Certainly, if folks would want to reach out to us with comments, uh, there's an address, uh, email address, as well as phone as well as phone number that they can call us and reach out to us. But should they never do that in that sort of way, hopefully, we do represent some sense of objectivity, some reality, and give them a chance to understand. It's okay to help people, but you can't fix everything for them, but you should be able to at least recognize the responsibility to take care of yourself so that you're in a best position to help other people. And the best way you can do that is to truly, you can feel sorry for them, have empathy, but you can't buy into a lot of the negative thinking especially if you recognize it to be distorted, or you're not going to do anything but further it. So Sam, anatomy of an over-apology. Yeah. You really aren't sorry you were late, are you? Oh, no, I was. I, I really was. <laughs> not at all. I want to encourage our listeners, though, to uh, check back in on the next podcast. I guess there's really no time dimension to that, though, just other than just, just, just don't check. miss it. Check. Just come back check. And again, we want to thank you for listening to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay and Sam Clay.